I first offer my respectful obeisances to the lotus feet of my initiating spiritual master and all my instructing spiritual masters. So uh, we're going to read the purport again because this purport is as good as gold. Such an important uh, purport and a verse. And I've taken the liberty of highlighting some sections of it, some passages that we'll specifically be going over uh, in the presentation. Either we did it last week or we're going to do go over these things this week. So that's why I've highlighted a few of these things. It's hard to say that uh, uh, anything is more important in this purport because it is uh, so phenomenal, but I've highlighted some things we can pay a little bit more attention to. So Srila Jiva Goswami in his thesis, Bhakti Sandarbha 202, has stated that uncontaminated devotional service is the objective of pure Vaishnavas and that one has to execute such service in the association of devotees. Has to. By associating with devotees of Lord Krishna, one develops a sense of Krishna consciousness and thus becomes inclined towards the loving service of the Lord. This is the process of approaching this, the Supreme Lord by gradual appreciation in devotional service. If one desires unalloyed devotional service, one must associate with devotees of Sri Krishna. And by such association, only can the conditioned soul achieve a taste for transcendental love and thus revive his eternal relationship with Godhead in a specific manifestation in terms of of the specific transcendental mellow, rasa, that one has eternally inherent in him. If one develops love for Krishna by Krishna conscious activities, one can know the supreme absolute truth. But he who tries to understand God simply by logical arguments will not succeed, nor will he get a taste for unalloyed devotion. The secret is that one must submissively listen to those who know perfectly the science of God and one must begin the mode of service regulated by the preceptor. A devotee already attracted by the name, form, quality, etc. of the Supreme Lord may be directed to his specific manner of devotional service. He need not waste time in approaching the Lord through logic. The expert spiritual master knows well how to engage his disciples' energy in the transcendental loving service of the Lord, and thus he engages a devotee in a specific devotional service according to his special tendency. A devotee must have only one initiating spiritual master, because in the scriptures, acceptance of more than one is always forbidden. There is no limit, however, to the number of instructing spiritual masters one may accept, Generally, a spiritual master who constantly instructs a disciple in spiritual science becomes his initiating spiritual master later on. One should always remember that a person who is reluctant to accept a spiritual master and be initiated is sure to be baffled in his endeavors to go back to Godhead. One who is not properly initiated may present himself as a great devotee, but in fact he is sure to encounter many stumbling, stumbling blocks on the path of progress towards spiritual realization with the result that he must continue his terms of material existence 
term of material existence without relief. Such a helpless person is compared to a ship without a rudder, for such a ship can never reach its destination. It is imperative, therefore, that one accept a spiritual master if he at all wants to get, uh, I'm sorry, if he at all desires to gain the favor of the Supreme Lord. The service of the spiritual master is essential. If there is no chance to serve the spiritual master directly, a devotee must serve him by remembering his instructions. There is no difference between the spiritual master's instructions and the spiritual master himself. In his absence, therefore, the, his words of direction should be the pride of the disciple. If one thinks that he is above consulting anyone, including a spiritual master, he is at once an offender at the lotus feet of the Lord. Such an offender can never go back to Godhead. It is imperative that a serious person accept a bona fide spiritual master in terms of Shastra conjunctions. Sri Jiva Goswami advises that one should not accept a spiritual master in terms of hereditary or social, uh, I'm sorry, um, customary social or ecclesiastical conventions. One should simply try to find a genuinely qualified spiritual master for actual advancement in spiritual understanding. So the translation to the verse again is, I offer my respectful obeisances at the lotus feet of my initiating spiritual master and all my instructing spiritual masters. So, um, not a, um, uh, well, let me make a disclaimer in the beginning here. Uh, that uh, this, of course, is my understanding of uh, this subject matter. Uh, and, of course, it may be s either superficial or flawed. Um, and I, I recognize that I'm admitting that. Uh, I don't have time to quote all of my sources or all the verses um, so that I can substantiate all of my understanding. Uh, but um, I would just say that uh, you know I'm perfectly open for corrections or if we agree to disagree at the end. But anyway, having said that, um, there was some questions at the end of uh, uh, the class last week. And um, now I'm hoping that if you hear the remainder of the presentation that those questions will be answered. Otherwise, you know, of course, at the end we have discussion Q&A, so we can take it up then. So, um, uh, as a summary, just as we began last week, because, it, you know, it's uh, an intricate subject matter. So, the main points I wanted to bring out is, first of all, that where we are at the beginning of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. This is the invocation verses that are being discussed. Uh, and then from there, we wanted to um, discuss the very process of devotional service, how it's a journey, and the Guru is the guide uh, for such a long lifetime journey. Uh, one is born with the mission to accomplish this, and he's born with faith, with Shraddha. That's where it all begins. Um, until finally you know, we develop into a full-grown uh, youth and into adulthood, into maturity. So, um, 
these are mainly where we wanted to steer this and where we really left off last, last time was um, uh, examining the stumbling blocks which are crises in our devotional life uh, what retards our growth and what we can do in order to overcome these things um, so we're just going to go over again the slide that we did last time and just briefly touched on them to review uh, what we had covered already so uh, the chart that you see here it um, this, uh, uh, even last time, we really can't get into this. The entire uh, first chapters of the Chaitanya Charitamrita are to examine the invocation verses. Um, but at least we you take a look at the headings uh, that uh, there are three processes that should be done in sequence in order to achieve the benediction the treasure of devotional service and those are to define the objective in other words we state what it is that we want to achieve and then we ask for the benediction the, the desired award and then uh, offer obeisances to thank uh, the, to give thanks for the gift so right now where we are is it right at the very beginning? Uh, the first verse is Vande uh, uh, Guru Nisha Bhaktan and then Isha uh, Nisha Avatarakan. So this is the beginning of defining the objective. It begins with the Guru, uh, the Diksha Guru, and all the Shiksha Gurus. So that's where we are right now. And then uh, we went to the next slide. Um, Shiva Prabhupada explains in the purport that if one is reluctant to accept guidance of the spiritual masters then he is sure to be baffled in his endeavors healing counter many stumbling blocks on the path <coughs> any long journey it starts by it should start by considering what are the obstacles that we're going to encounter uh, for example here on the big island we have Waipio Valley which is uh, a, this amazing valley tucked away uh, on the north west side of the island and uh, east side of the island, sorry. Anyway, it's a beautiful white crescent shaped beach, uh, very lush, it even has uh, wild horses, many waterfalls. There's, I think it's seven waterfalls that successively come down like in steps uh, from the mountains. Anyway, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Someplace you really want to go. Um, however, to get there, it's a very steep, narrow path. It's got a, a winding road, hairpin turns. You really need a 4x4 four four, uh, to even get down there. Uh, so, similarly, we have uh, a, uh, the most precious uh, objective. Uh, Purush, Purusha, um, the, the Parma Purusha, uh, Param Purusharta, sorry, Param Purusharta, uh, the greatest goal of life. But to get there, uh, there are maybe many stumbling blocks. So we have to be sufficiently prepared uh, so that we can meet those obstacles. And this, Sri Krishna, 
uh, also in the Bhagavad Gita. This is where he begins his uh, discourse. I mean, it's right there in uh, the third chapter, text 34. He uses the word pari uh, pantinao, which means uh, that in the path of uh, spiritual realization, there are many turns and potholes and down trees that we need to be aware of so that we can overcome these obstacles to get to our goal. But if somebody is so puffed up that he thinks that he can as- approach the Supreme Personality of Godhead on his own with it, without the guidance of the Guru, then uh, such a person is a fender at the lotus feet of the Lord and he will never be able to go back home back to Godhead. The example that's given is it's a ship without a rudder, no direction, or as we will use the analogy, it's like you're lost without a map. There's no direction because there's no guide. So we must have a spiritual guide, the guru, in order to take us back home, back to Godhead, by taking our hand and showing us the path. Uh, In the purport, Srila Prabhupada said that there is no difference between the spiritual master's instruction and the spiritual master himself. Um, as we know, uh, the secret to spiritual advancement is to please the guru. Uh, this is called a uh, kripa shakti. If we attain the favor of the preceptor, then our spiritual advancement is assured. Um, we know that um, um, <laughs> sometimes, uh, I mean it's normal to have doubts that it was very rare to have Srila Prabhupada's Vapu, his association. And so if the the secret of spiritual life is to please the spiritual master, if we didn't never had the association of Srila Prabhupada, very, very little, uh, then one may think, that, does he even know I exist? Um, but the point is, is that the Vani, uh, the words of instruction, those are available to any, anyone. Srila Prabhupada many times has stressed this point that uh, the secret to success, how he became successful, was only, as he stated, only because I uh, follow the instructions of my spiritual master. I do not deviate. Uh, he's given so many instructions like that. Um, so, uh, and we see that uh, even those that were close to Srila Prabhupada, you know, had his, his personal association, um, I mean, some of them were, are not even, uh, were not even particularly advanced, whereas others, even second and third generation, uh, removed from Srila Prabhupada, never had the chance to ever meet him. Uh, born after his disappearance, uh, still, uh, they are very advanced, and um, you know many of them are my shiksha gurus. So, uh, so the instructions that the spiritual master gives, they are non-different from him. And as Srila Prabhupada says, this amazing statement that in the absence of the spiritual master, his words of direction should be the pride of the disciple. You know, it's just like if you have a very wealthy man, then he's proud. Why? because he feels empowered, like completely uh, protected from anything that's going to happen because he's got money in his hands, something very, very valuable. He's got assets 
that he can overcome whatever obstacles come his way. And he's got so much shelter, as a matter of fact, that he's able to liberally give to others. So the Vani, the direction uh, of the spiritual master, is the wealth of the disciple, and therefore it's his pride. So uh, let's go to the next slide that we covered last week. Um, so we have the path of devotional service, and on the path there's different road signs. So there's a fork in the road. You know that there's a turn coming up ahead, and you've got to decide which which way, left or right. Um, but it's it's not actually straight and narrow. There are many turns and twists, and we need to know uh, when to turn at the appropriate road sign, uh, neither too soon or nor too late, in order to become successful. So there's a path of devotional service, and then the sadhana. Uh, that is the journey itself, the practice of devotional service, and that's represented by the map. And the sadhaka is like a developing child, a little baby, when it first starts out. Just as uh, Jiva Goswami points out that, uh, uh, in his, uh, from his Bhakti Sandarbha, that the objective of, a, of the pure Vaishnava is uncontaminated devotional service, but one must execute the, uh, this service in the association of other devotees. As Srila Prabhupada says in the uh, purport to Srimad Bhagavatam uh, 4.9.11 that if we think that we can make spiritual advancement with outside of the association of devotees, we are living in a hallucination. Um, a child has to develop uh, with loving parents in a society growing up, otherwise he will not develop sufficiently. Um, and then in, again in the purport of the prophet says that the secret is to submissively listen to those who are you know, qualified perfectly uh, competent in the science of, of Godhead and uh, to begin service regulated by the preceptor which of course is a guru the guide to show us the path uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur in the Bhajana Rahasya he calls this Navada Bhakti uh, which has lakshanas or symptoms and those are qualities or skills which are needed to traverse the path. So, uh, next slide. This, uh, in order to explain more the analogy that we're trying to develop, uh, if you have a developing child, uh, it needs to be uh, nurtured. So, it, similarly, our devotional qualities, in order for us to get a healthy, mature ego, it has to be nurtured from the beginning, successively stage by stage. Uh, just like it's with a young child, first there's the loving care of the mother and father, then there's uh, next come peers and friends of their own age, then there's the turbulent um, teenagers, and then finally turns into a young adult, into adulthood, and then to maturity. So the same development there is there in devotional service, just as the child, he develops to maturity, to have a healthy uh, ego. Similarly, the spiritual child develops a spiritual ego. So these are two parallel processes, but they're not always in sync. Uh, div um, diminishing the uh, false material ego and developing the spiritual ego. So it's two parallel processes, but it doesn't develop at 
it develops at the same time, but not always at the same rate. So if uh, we look at a map, we can find our present position, and that is our identity is false, that I am the enjoyer. Uh, in Srila Vishnath Chakravarti Thakur's uh, Madhurya Kadambari, in the 8th chapter, which I believe is called uh, the Supreme Goal of Life, um, he expresses it in two ways, uh, uh, ahanta and mamata. Ahanta means me, and mamata means all that is mine. So in order to uh, be free of the false ego, the Shastra recommends uh, different paths according to the inclinations, the advancement of consciousness of different people. It rec recommends the path of karma, which leads to uh, expand the false ego and to bewilder one. However, if one follows the Vedic path, then eventually he will come to the point of jnana, which aims towards the diminishment and then the destruction of the false ego. However, there's a third path, and the third path is bhakti. It's not destruction of the false ego, but rather reformation or development of the spiritual ego, which turns the ahanta and mamata into, I am not the enjoyer, but ahanta um, is that I am the servant. And uh, the mamata is that I belong to the spiritual world, I belong to the Lord and the Lord's devotees. That has to be there. And mamata means that the Lord is mine. So then we go to the next slide that we covered um, in the Madhurya Kadambini, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur. He points out that on the path there are nine signs uh, while developing our spiritual ego. Um, he doesn't explicitly point it out like that, but if you read in between the lines, you will find this. That uh, the signs, uh, what they are, are basically turning points, and they're perceived as crises in our life. In order to make progress to our ultimate destination, we have to get off the present road that we're on and turn onto a new road successively to get to the destination. And we have to know when it's time to turn and then stay on, our, uh, on that course. If we stay on the course that we're on now and not turn when it's appropriate, then we'll be delayed or we may even be lost. We have to turn onto the new road at the appropriate time. So there's nine road signs and, uh, which correspond to the nine levels of advancement and devotional service and they're more like a merging lane to the next. Uh, you should keep to the right, meaning that we've come far enough and now it's time to turn on to the next, to the next road. So going to the next slide that we covered, um, also for the Madhurya Kadambani, uh, spiritual advancement uh, is, of course, like we explained, is the diminishment of the false ego and development of the real ego, which ultimately will uh, will attain pure love of Godhead. So Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, he uses five terms that describe the symptoms of each stage. And we went over that last week. Ganda and Gandamatra, Ekadesha uh, uh, Vartini, or Bahu uh, uh, Dashavartami, which means in either one place or many places, Prayiki, Purna, Adyantiki, uh, which means uh, complete, almost complete, or um, extreme. So we went over that last time. 
Um, go to the next slide. And then this is where we left off, that uh, the, the map, it helps us traverse the path, but, and then the analogy of the child is what we as a sadhikas, what we will experience along the path as we grow uh, and uh, we become fit to complete the, the journey, because it's a lifetime journey. Uh, in order for us to develop our spiritual ego, and the metaphor is that of a child developing to adulthood. So uh, the, we will go over the beginning stages up to Nishta, uh, uh, Shraddha, Sadhusanga, Bhajanakriya. So we have these different five stages, you know, from an infant to a toddler to childhood, teenage, and then to a youth. Um, so that's where we left off last week. We'll pick up from there. Um, so that gives you a little uh, background. Um, so there's five stages of spiritual development and uh, that we're going to cover up to Nishta. And uh, to attain each level, it requires a set of skills which are called adhikari, the ability. So uh, the skills uh, that are necessary to uh, growth, uh, to grow a healthy uh, ego I wanted to give a, um, to make a reference from the uh, Rihad Parashara Hora Shastra. Um, hora, just like horoscope, Hora uh, means, uh, refers to uh, when you're able to cast a natal, a, ba- a birth chart, and you're able to predict the lifetime of an individual. So at the end of uh, this Shastra, which, is, uh, which was um, come down, to human society, originally from Parashara Muni, um, come through the ages. Uh, at the end of uh, the uh, the Shastra, um, there's, uh, it's divided into like 90 chapters anyway, towards the end, the question is raised, what influences a person's life? And very interestingly, he says there are three things. Uh, there's, of course, um, Jyotish, you know, the stars, because by the position of the planets, uh, you're able to tell what one's karma is. Uh, uh, Physically, you know, one is born with different uh, either uh, good traits or bad traits. You know, may be diseased, may have all kinds of abilities that are born with his body, may have beauty, born into a good family, etc. Those things we can't change. Those things we're born with, and we also, we have tendencies. These are... proclivities because of our past karma uh, that turn into uh, vasanas. Uh, these are our tendencies towards a, a way of thinking and understanding the world and therefore we will repeat the same things that we did in our previous lifetimes, good or bad. So those things are you can't really change. You're born with a particular body and a particular family with a particular type of tendencies and mentality. Uh, those are very difficult to change. Uh, then the next thing is uh, Sangha. Sangha is very, very important, just as we're reading here in the purport. Our association, actually, we are influenced by every single person we meet, even if it's very insignificant. Of course, according to um, 
how emotionally involved we are with those persons or how they affect us emotionally. That is how much influence these people are going to have in our lives. But anyone that we come in contact with, you know, you can just go out shopping or something and then you come in contact with people you don't have to speak to them. You just see them and how they're dressed or how they treat you or something like that. They will affect you. All of these are cumulative. So association, either good or bad, is very, very important. That we have a little bit more control of in that we can try and choose our association and we can enhance our good association by how we treat them, by how respectful we are, by how we take their association and conversely if there's bad association we can avoid them or if we can't avoid being with them we can avoid having an emotional connection with them because that is what will affect our consciousness uh, deep on the subconscious level as well. So we have more control over that and then the last thing is balia. Balia is means uh, the when there is a child when he is born he is completely vulnerable. These are the formative years where you can mold a person. So after that, you know, what you do with your life after that um, is up to you. But very, very much in those formative years, if you have the good fortune to have you know, good parents or, or good guardians that will guide you properly and give you the proper uh, direction, then that'll set you up for life. Uh, approximately from one to five or seven years old. Those are the very, very delicate formative years. So these things will influence our life. And if we look at them um, closely, you find that all of them have to do with samskaras. Samskaras are translated as refer uh, reformatory processes, purificatory processes, because if they're done properly, they give a very um, influential emotional um, feeling that uh, influences you for the rest of your life. So um, it's very, very important in our devotional life, in the very beginning, that we have to be lucky enough to come in contact with um, competent, compassionate devotees that will put us on the right track. I just, I wanted to say that um, uh, I appreciate, uh, like for instance, our Hari Prabhu, for quite some time, uh, he would take uh, new people that were coming to the temple and instead of just letting them go to the Sunday feast, if they were specifically new people, he would invite them to come up to uh, have a question and answer uh, session. And I thought that was very good because, you know, sometimes you can meet devotees that can actually be very harmful to new people. They actually seek out new people and tell them who knows what. So I uh, appreciated that. Also, my, I'll have to say my wife also was doing that. She would take new people that were at the temple and uh, really, really take them under her wing and guide them. So uh, that's what we really need to do. We need to step out and uh, help uh, new people that come to uh, devotional service because uh, it's like the beginning of their spiritual uh, life. Uh, the beginning is... Shraddha. Shraddha is our spiritual birth and this is where we really need nourishing. Um, it's where we consume the milk of Sambandha Gyan. 
the mother uh, is uh, Veda Mata. The direction of the Shastras and the Guru is like the father. So the skill, the Adhikari that needs to be developed at this tender, tender first age is that we need uh, to develop complete trust and accept authority. Um, just one second. Yes, so uh, when we come, you know, we, we feel like we found the answers to all that we're looking for. Um, that uh, this is something that we absolutely were looking for throughout our lives. And uh, without it, uh, we were lost. So it's when we hear this knowledge, we have to have this feeling of utter dependence that we know nothing and there's a vast ocean of knowledge out there that we've been exposed to finally. And we have this uh, complete gratitude and respect to uh, those that give it to us. Uh, and that we have an attitude which is described as vishvaso. Vishvaso, it means uh, uh, when you, you sleep in the lap of the mother and you feel completely protected and at peace, that's vishvaso. That kind of shraddha uh, needs to be there. However, the problem is, is that when uh, someone first comes to devotional service, uh, we may put our trust in an unqualified person. Uh, I don't want to, you know, say something negative, but uh, sometimes it's necessary, you know, to make the point. Uh, many times when people first come to the temple, some devotees will take aside those people that have been to the temple for the first time. And especially if they're really interested in Krishna consciousness, they'll see it as their duty to take them and fill them in on how horrible the temple president is, how he's a thief, and all the gurus are child molesters and murderers. Uh, it happens all the time, even now. Uh, and then they'll give them their card for a Ritvik site where they can find out the real truth about ISKCON and the GBC. Uh, so that's their preaching. And the reason is that they themselves have this problem. They have a problem with authority, they have a, a problem with dependence, and therefore they're spreading that poison to whoever comes, especially to new people. So that's a problem when one comes as a little newborn baby in devotional service and he runs into the wrong person. Or another problem is he may run into a um, competent preacher. However, that preacher may not be on the purest level. They may want to preach with not the most um, pure intentions, but uh, want to use those people to enhance their own prestige and their own praise. So even though they're saying everything right, it's, it's kind of like eating sweet rice with sand in it. Uh, better than, than running into the wrong person, but still, you're not getting the real thing. Uh, then the other problem is if you run into a selfless devotee who knows the Shastra, who's uh, advanced in their devotional service, you run into the right person, but you develop, start to develop uh, or have, come with, preconceived ideas and therefore have the wrong understanding about what association is. Uh, by beginning to assign all kinds of supernatural, almost like mystic powers to the person, making him greater than uh, they really are, 
that they're big Mahabhagavatas, the only Mahabhagavata on the whole planet, or that um, uh, they have all kinds of uh, qualities which they really don't have. Instead of seeing them for what we should really appreciate a sadhu for, and that's for their purity to represent, to represent the disciplic succession and take that person and have them well grounded in the shastras. Uh, which ultimately leads to disappointment and disillusionment in that person because um, just like a newborn baby has a psychological effect to see their parents as most powerful when indeed they are. Um, they're very, very vulnerable at this age and they see their parents as good as God. So similarly, uh, we may see when we first come to Krishna consciousness uh, and we have to be aware of when people first come uh, and are interested in uh, taking a spiritual life that if we uh, want to impress them with our abilities and purity then that's wrong and we're doing them harm that's violence because they will be disappointed in us when they find out that we're not the big Mahabhagavatas that we think we are. Um, and that kind of disappointment leads to rejection. Uh, there's, I'll give you two examples uh, on uh, Prabhupada memories. You can see, I believe it's item number five or something like that. Um, Pushta Krishna is uh, talking about his association with Srila Prabhupada. And uh, he says once uh, he was glorifying Srila Prabhupada, just the two of them alone, and he was saying that uh, he had the power to uh, convert the whole world to Krishna consciousness. And Prabhupada was accepting very nicely like that, encouraging his disciple. says, now it's your duty to spread Krishna consciousness and to make sure the people aren't misguided. And then Pushta Krishna said, uh, Prabhupada, I trust only you, no one else. And then Prabhupada said to him, said, don't trust me. I will disappoint you. Only trust Krishna. He will never disappoint you. So uh, this, the tendency is for those who have a polluted aim, even devotional service, they'll want that glorification. And the more they hear, the more they, they want it. And they'll mislead their followers. But Srila Prabhupada never did that. He would always point us in the direction of Sri Krishna, not to himself. Another example we can give is uh, once in the early days in San Francisco, a young hippie girl came to the temple and uh, the devotees directed him to Srila Prabhupada because he was very accessible. So she came and sat down while Srila Prabhupada was talking to I think it was Gargamuni. Was he in San Francisco? Anyway, somebody who is the treasurer. And Srila uh, uh, Prabhupada asked her to just wait. And uh, Prabhupada continued to talk to uh, his treasurer about, you know, why did you spend this? Why did you spend five cents on this? Ten cents on this? And what is this big expense? Five dollars? What did you just spend on? And the, this hippie girl was getting more and more agitated until she couldn't take it anymore. She just blurted out finally, I came here to find love. I came here to find spiritual life. I came here to find uh, purity. You know, like that. And uh, Prabhupada was looking at her and, and stayed silent. Finally, when she was done, you know, with her, her spiel, he said very calmly, 
uh, you've come to the right place, calm down, sit down, <laughs> like that. You've come to the right place, you've found it. Uh, but she had these preconceived ideas that a spiritual guru can't deal with money. So in the same way, we may, uh, we inevitably will disappoint people if we point to ourselves as being big, big sadhus, but in actuality we are not. We, sh we should, should be doing is pointing them towards the real thing, which is the cyclic succession, which is Krishna consciousness, which is the Shastras, becoming established in the Shastras. The next stage is Sadhu Sangha. Sadhu Sangha, just as in uh, Shraddha, uh, the ability to develop uh, trust in the devotees and the Sadhus is there. First of all, you learn to trust. The next, as you grow, is uh, you learn to speak. You speak the language of the devotees. Uh, you become familiar with all kinds of terms. I remember when I first started in Krishna consciousness in my younger days, I learned all kinds of prayers and verses I could actually remember, but I had very, very little understanding of what in the world it all meant. Um, as an example, our son, when he was very young, he first started to read, we used to go down uh, Baratan Street, if anybody knows where that is in Honolulu, there's uh, the Board of Water Supply, the Water Department, and for the longest time, he never, didn't find, we didn't find this out until much, much later in his teens, he told us that he, all, he couldn't ever understand why it said Board of Water Supply, because we took him to Water World, and he, was the, and he, he liked to go to the beach and stuff, so he's saying, how, how could anybody ever be Board of Water Supply? So, yeah, just learning the language doesn't necessarily mean that we understand what it's all about. Um, when I first joined the temple in, all, uh, in L.A., um, uh, you know, I just read Easy Journey to Other Planets and got some other books, a Christian book, etc. I finally joined the temple. And uh, for the longest time, uh, from reading Easy Journey to Other Planets, I thought that Prashadam was LSD. I mean, really, I had a, it was quite a while before I understood I, I thought the food was spiked with LSD. I was waiting, you know, to, to receive the sacrament. But uh, anyway, so it gives you an idea how when people come to Krishna consciousness, we, they'll start to learn the language but not necessarily understand it. But that is the first step. Uh, when I was a freshman in high school, one of the first things that I, wanted, I did is I took a driver's ed class because I really wanted you know, to get a driver's license. But the first thing that they teach you in driver's ed is the language of road signs. You know, you get these terms, you know, like ped xing, uh, uh, yield on green, no U-turns. You know, like, what does this all mean? Uh, even lines on the road, there's uh, yellow lines, there's white lines, and even the lines, if they're broken or if they're solid or double white lines, they mean something. So these signs are all abbreviated languages that one has to learn. And as a matter of fact, when you go to get your driver's license, uh, the first thing that you have to do is you have to pass the written test. You have to show that you understand how to read the signs. And if you can't read the signs, there is no way they're going to put you behind a wheel for the driver's test. So similarly, when we come to Krishna consciousness, we may have all kinds of misconceptions, or uh, even if not wrong conceptions, 
other conceptions about the meaning of terms. You know, just like, for instance, I came with a polluted by Mayavad philosophy. And the terms like mukti, kaivalya, bhakti were polluted by my previous understandings. The understanding of those terms in devotional service are completely different than what a Mayavadi understands them to mean. So one has to um, delve into hermeneutics. This is a, the, the art, the science of the meaning of words that are used in Shastra, in scriptures. So in ancient times, brahmacharis, the first thing they would learn is uh, they would memorize uh, from start to finish the Amarkosha. Amarkosha is the dictionary of Sanskrit terms because without that you can't even understand what is being spoken. So we have in our disciplinary succession, Rupa Goswami has given us our Amarkosha. That's the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. You know, what is Bhakti? What is the goal? What are the Angas of Bhakti? What are the qualities of devotees and the qualities of Krishna, etc.? Those have to be learned first. So for a new baby, just as a toddler starts to walk and uh, starts to speak, the parents are very happy, even with the broken language of the child, they're happy that he's just trying to understand the language. So when he says, da, da, ba, ba, or he says, pabubad, pabubad, uh, even though there's no not much understanding what that means, still the parents or the spiritual masters, the devotees are very happy to see that. So that's the first stage. But one of the the things that we have to understand is in this stage, just like a toddler, you don't give them uh, any kind of concrete responsibility. Uh, they're not going to understand what to do. And all they want to do at this time is just play. So that's the stage of Sadhu Sangha. So first of all, you learn to trust then you learn how to speak, and then you learn how to act. That's the next stage. That's called bhajana kriya. It's a practice of devotional service. That's why it's called bhajana kriya. Bhajana is devotion to the Lord. We're not anywhere close to that stage. Therefore, it's called bhajana kriya, or the practice of devotional service. After that, the next stage is anarchanivritti. So we, we think we learn to speak, we learn to act, and then we learn, did I say that right? Trust, speak, act, and then think. We learn how to think. In an Arjunavritti stage, that's when we become really introspective. So this is, would be the analogy, analogous of um, the stage of being a teenager, which is very, very turbulent age. And then finally comes Nishta, where we learn how to feel. Uh, as a young uh, person, we start to get our first uh, feelings. Um, we don't have mature feelings, but we learn how to feel, how to have emotions, spiritual emotions. Um, so the pediment, impediments for these, we mentioned some of the problems in the Shraddha platform. There is a uh, fear of dependence. That's a, uh, a feeling of... Um, uh, that we don't want to give up our independence because it's very, very strong and uh, we're afraid to trust. Uh, and the compensation is that uh, we assign false attributes to uh, those that we respect, uh, the sadhus that we came in contact with, uh, just like the, the child has uh, sees the parents as supreme, uh, later up on uh, will end up depreciating them 
uh, when they, f they find out that they're not supreme, uh, and then they'll develop a, a disrespect for them. Uh, and another symptom of uh, problem uh, with this um, stage is that one has a real tendency to want to look for and be dependent. His, his faith is dependent on seeing miracles. He needs that in order to believe. Uh, then the next stage, Sadhu Sangha, there's a fear of responsibility, as I mentioned. Uh, Bhajana Kriya, there's a fear of introspection. Um, this is um, uh, when one is, has a real tendency towards uh, Niyamagraha, or mechanically following, looking for formulas. And then in the Anarchanavritti stage, there's a fear of humility, uh, because uh, one is afraid uh, to admit both to himself what to speak of others, that he is a hypocrite and a failure in devotional life. He has a false identity of his own spiritual advancement. Uh, externally, he presents himself as a big leader with many followers or uh, done a lot of book distribution or started so many temples. But inside, uh, he's a failure, a, a hypocrite and uh, doesn't want anyone else to know this because if that would, um, what, it would ha what would happen is that one would lose uh, their identity. So very, very afraid to admit to themselves or others that uh, they've been a failure in their spiritual life. So uh, we have to uh, lose our false identity, our false spiritual identity in order to advance to the next stage, to Nishta. Um, it's just like in the military. Of course, now, I, have, I came from a military family, but I was not in the military. But I've seen enough war movies, <laughs> uh, documentaries, whatever, uh, that I know that when you go to boot camp, the first thing they do is they just destroy your ego. Ego. I was actually I talked to several people that went through boot camp. They uh, just demolish your your uh, your image of yourself, and the whole reason for this, you know, by screaming at you, etc., is so that you can uh, become pliable and follow directions uh, without question as it's given uh, from the chain of command, at least for the military, without question. That's the goal. Uh, because it has to go through, you know, from the general to the lieutenant to the sergeant to the down to the foot soldier that, you know, if they get an order, they're going to follow it. Because the soldiers, they're dependent on each other. You know, these are like their brothers and sisters in arms, and if they, they need to work as a team, uh, not so much me, but it's about the guy next to me, and uh, if you don't follow, then you put yourself and everyone else in, in harm's way. Um, so by having that, that kind of, uh, being those like combat situations, then one develops a very, very strong bond that's not available anywhere else. So similarly, in spiritual life, uh, it's only when we are willing to give up the false spiritual persona that we've built up over years, you know, that I'm a big, big devotee, when we're willing to give that up, then we can finally move to the stage of nishta. So nishta, when our heart is pure enough, then we're able to reflect 
the mature feelings of higher grade devotees. They are not actually our own feelings because we're too young to have mature feelings. However, because of the purity of our heart, we're able to feel the emotions of higher grade devotees. Um, for instance, uh, this is one thing I'm thinking, I was thinking about. For instance, compassion. Uh, honestly, I have never felt real compassion for the fallen souls. I'm, I'll just admit it. I just, it's too selfish. I'm just not advanced enough to really to feel the real thing. Um, now, it, what happens is in an Arjuna Vritti, it's very necessary to, for us that we need to help those that are younger in us in devotional service. For new people, for people that are, aren't, along, um, aren't advanced in the, uh, in the path as much as we are, we want to help those that are younger in, in, uh, than us. Uh, it's, this is a very introspective stage, uh, Anarta Nirviti, where we're uh, trying to think of what is it that I'm actually doing here? Uh, and by helping others that are younger than us in devotional service, then it helps us to be introspective and for us to um, enhance our own conviction. I mean, I'll tell you just like this, you know, I, you know, when I give class, even I'm not very qualified myself, not very advanced myself, but when I, you know, when I have to give class, it helps my own conviction. So it's the same thing when we preach younger devotees or new devotees, it's not that we really have compassion for them. I mean, we might have some sporty, you know, some glimpses sometimes of having some compassion, but as, as far as steady or really having compassion, you know, we're still, prior to Nishta, we have uh, feelings of our own enjoyment that, you know, like we get the feeling of pride, yeah, like, look at me, I'm a great devotee, I'm superior than you. Uh, so when we get to the stage of nishta, then we can actually feel uh, this emotion, actually feel compassion towards other people because we feel the compassion that higher grade devotees have for others. Um, so anyway, this is, that's where we left off last week. And then this is more or less the last slide, uh, but there's more I need to cover. Uh, I used all my time, what can I do? Sorry, I'll be over. Uh, this is the point I wanted to get to about uh, a definition of what, I, what we mean by crisis. Uh, crisis is not necessarily a bad thing, although usually it's seen to be because we're attached to our old ways of doing things. Uh, but crisis actually means any significant decision that we have come to the point that we have to make. In the dictionary it says that a crisis is defined as a decisive point in the progress of a disease. Also, uh, virtue, uh, a vitally important or decisive state of a thing, point at which change must come for better or worse, from the Latinized form of the Greek crisis, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the turning point in a disease, that change, which indicates recovery or death. This is from Hippocrates, the, modern, the father of modern medicine. Literally a judgment, the result of a trial or selection from krinrin, to separate, to decide, or to judge from the root of kri, uh, which means to sieve, in other words, to uh, filter. 
and thus to discriminate or to distinguish. So in other words, what it means is it's a turning point in our life where we decide either this way or that way, and usually it's very painful because it's so uncomfortable. Krishna usually has to really push us, you know, give us a loving kick, and with tears in our eyes, we have to thank Krishna for pushing us into the next stage of devotional service. Uh, I just really wanted to stress this point because I think maybe last time I wasn't clear on it, but it, it's just like if you were on the freeway, let's say you're in I-10 or something, and you see a sign that says, Highway 76 coming up, three miles, and one mile, and half a mile, and get in the right lane only. Uh, the problem is, is that we are uncomfortable because we've been in this stage of our life or a stage of devotional service for so long that, and we are afraid of the unknown. I remember when I was uh, in Philadelphia, uh, this was way back when uh, GPS was uh, kind of a novelty and just getting started. I believe the name of the company was Gremlin. They were the first big one. And uh, I was, when I got in the car and I, I was able to use this uh, GPS, I think, wow, this is really neat. It takes you to the destination. You don't have to read a map anymore. It'll tell you turn by turn, voice activated, where to go. But the problem was it didn't always work. And sometimes I was completely unfamiliar with the area and I would be lost all day. I was going around in circles. So I had a, after a short time, I had a real distrust of using this Gremlin GPS. Uh, so, you know, sometimes if you're just going, you know you're going west, you're not going east, that's good enough. You, you're uh, not uh, willing to turn onto the next road even though, you're, even though you know you're supposed to according to the map or according to the signs. So uh, if we do that, we may be delayed or lost. So the crisis is that turning point at which we have to make a decision. Now it's time to turn. And when we make the commitment to get into the right lane, as long as we stay in the exit lane, we stay in course, then we will get to the next segment of our journey. So some examples of this, just like uh, the stage from Shraddha to Sadhu Sangha, um, the first time I heard the Hare Krishna Mantra was on the radio. There was an audio, audio biography of the Beatles, and when it, I was talking about George Harrison, they played the Hare Krishna Mantra, and I had no idea what it was, but it was the most beautiful, mystic, uh, sound I had ever heard in my life and that was the beginning of my Shraddha um, until um, I finally got easy journeys to other planets and other books and incense and started going to the temple so when I know I've said this several times but it means a lot to me so I'm just going to repeat it when I finally decided that that's it I'm going to run away from home and I because my parents didn't want me to live in the temple you know but I decided that's it. I'm going to uh, run away and I am going to join the temple and I'm not coming back. As soon as I made that actual decision that that's it, never to return, I was surprised. I was alone in the forest. I made this decision of talking to myself. Okay, that's it. And I started to sob. I cry uncontrollably and think, what is going on? I'm not even attached to my family. Why am I crying like this? And it was because I made that decision. It was a crisis in my life. And therefore, it had a very uh, emotional effect on me. And I was flabbergasted. I was absolutely um, uh, astonished that that happened to me. That was my first experience. Then going from 
Sadhu Sangha to Bhajana Kriya also, I was offered the opportunity to take initiation from Srila Prabhupada. And I took that very, very seriously. Not, uh, and um, I de- at first, I declined. And it wasn't because... Um, and for any other reason than I was thinking, I took this very, very seriously. I, I said, this is a vow, and this includes the four regulative principles. I said, am I going to be able to be a devotee for the rest of my life, follow these principles, chant 16 rounds, dedicate my life for the entire rest of my lifetime without turning back? And that gave me pause. So the first time I waited, I waited a little time uh, before I was offered initiation Actually, I, I asked for initiation next. So th- these are examples that, of things that happened to me. Bhajana Kriya Tanarta Nivritti. So when you go from Bhajana Kriya in order to enter into Narta Nivritti, like I said, it's an introspective stage where you're really starting to think. Just like teenagers, they start to really, they don't just accept anything anymore, start to think, you know, is this really me? So in a similar way in spiritual life, uh, instead of just um, following, uh, you start to think, is this what I really want to do with my life? Uh, is, this, is spiritual advancement actually my goal? Uh, I know one devotee uh, for years, he'd been in devotional service, uh, uh, externally appearing to be, you know, a good devotee, but he privately was taking shelter of anarthas, and uh, to get re- relief from stress, he had this one particular uh, particular addiction uh, that was against the regulative principles, and uh, he knew he knew what's right or wrong. He knew it was not good for him, but he did it anyway because uh, you know it helped to relieve the stressful situations, and he just couldn't help himself. But one time, he had a dream, and uh, Krishna revealed to him the horrible results of continuing to you know to gratify this addiction that uh, he was uh, helpless to on his own to get rid of. And when he woke up, he woke up in a, in a, uh, a, a sweat. And uh, he resolved right then and there that he was going to root out uh, all the anartas and never again. And that's it. This, it's the commitment. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, there's no doubts, you know, when one makes a commitment like that. Uh, can pull over, he can make a U-turn. But the commitment is there. The decision is there. The stumbling blocks along the way have to be met and dealt with. Uh, just like uh, Mark Twain said that uh, it's easy to give up smoking. I've done it uh, like dozens of times or hundreds of times. Anyway, he said it very funny. In other words, uh, he made the commitment, but you know it took a lot longer to actually do it. So, uh, and uh, one thing is that this kind of surrender is actually, this is the first stage of Sharanagati. You know, we have that, uh, the verse, you know, Anu Kulyasya Sankalpa, and then Prati Kulyasya Varjanam, uh, accepting everything favorable and rejecting things that are unfavorable. So that's on the level of the mind. As we know, uh, the mind is Chanchala. So it's the first, it's genuine surrender but it doesn't mean that there aren't troubles along the way. So one thing we have to see is that 
all of these crises, they are uh, identity crises. And uh, the best example is that of uh, Arjuna. Arjuna had an identity crisis on the battle of Kurukshetra. He identified as the father, as the son, as a disciple, etc. And all of these personalities are going to be killed. And when they're gone, his personality, his identity would also be gone. So he had a crisis. Uh, so similarly, when we come to these different stages in our devotional progress, we have to give up our old identity and take on a new identity to advance our spiritual ego. So there are three outcomes uh, for a crisis. One six can successfully uh, overcome the crisis and go to the next stage and become more integrated into the society. Uh, he is able to relate to devotees better with better friendships and his uh, identity and his ability to associate with devotees and devotional service becomes enhanced. So you can, be, you can become successful or we can fail and remain on the same level or even degrade, go back to the previous level. In other words, we can either pull over, uh, you know, we're disabled and we reach for the uh, uh, hazard lights or we can make a U-turn and go back to the previous level. So that's certainly there. So there's either success or there's failure or there's compromise. That's the third thing. Compromise means that we will seek out and find others with the same problems that we have and justify ourselves or uh, join another camp, you know, like the Ritvik camp or something. So examples of that is on the Shraddha stage, um, actually before I go on, I have used up all my time. I've used up all my time and I've got probably, to be perfectly honest, I have probably at least 15 or 20 minutes uh, to go through four more pages of notes that I have. So actually at this time, I need to unmute to find out what the rest of you want to do. Again, I apologize that I'm so long winded. It takes me so long to get back Ron, are we unmuted? We are definitely unmuted. Okay. Well, two things. I'd be happy to listen to hear the rest, but one thought is, do you think you have enough to do another class and we can go to kind of a Q&A now and take that, what you're going to cram into 15 minutes and, and give us another class follow next week? Because this is really nice. Really, you're doing a great job. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying what you're talking about. All right. I certainly... I concur. I certainly do, but do you all have the patience for a third part? Absolutely, well, I do. Yeah, it's not about patience. It's yeah. very, very nice to hear all that you're saying. It's enlivening, and I think the thing is that you're saying things that I've heard before, but like it's some kind of fog that covered it. It's like uncovering things that I heard so many times and making it very clear. It's nice. Thank you. Really? Okay. Who has an objection? Well, Hare Krishna Prabhu, that was a very nice class. I think I concur with uh, Nara Hare Prabhu. Actually, I think your class was way too fast. There was too much, too much information to digest in just one hour. I mean, this is the crux of the matter of our philosophy. Divide this class more like in several sections, and, and you went a little too fast. It was very, very well researched, but there's a lot of information, a lot of terminology. A lot of concepts so it would be better if you did at least at least one more class but I would 
I think that you need more, like three more classes on this and slow down a little bit so we can digest it a little bit and give some uh, time for Q&A, otherwise, you know, it just goes through our head. All right, I, um, I didn't want to spend too much time on reviewing what we already covered before, and then by the time I got to the new stuff, there wasn't a whole lot of time left, so I apologize for that. Well, I, I don't think you should worry too much about it. I think that if you review things two, three, four times, this is this is the crux of the matter. We don't we don't have to come up with with newer material. What we need to do is we need to understand the 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 crux of the matter, the the actual facts. And and so I, I don't think there is there is any problem with repeating things. You know, actually, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of our philosophy is based on repetition. Even Japa is a repetition. So we got to repeat. I think Narahari Prabhu has said that a few times before too. That you know, um, at least we need to understand the concepts properly. And sometimes repetition is good. You know, I think we discussed that previously in other classes. So, and I think that your class was fabulous. Was fantastic. I mean, it's, it's great information. I really appreciate your work. I think it's fantastic. It just needs a little bit more time, maybe go a little bit slower so we can have some Q&A and take notes and, and really think about what you said because it's so beautiful. What you said is very, very beautiful. And I really appreciate all the work you have done. Thank you very much, Prabhu. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, and I'm fine with it, too. I think it would be great to hear more from you. Really? So you don't mind being yep. put off another week? <laughs> no, yeah, sir, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, another week is fine. You just you have too much material to cram into, uh, you know, one or two sessions. So you might truncate the summary the next time, you know. Okay. Just uh, try to really condense the summary. Yeah, actually, we could we could go back and listen to this recording. This is being recorded, right? So we could. Right. We could listen to it before the next class we should uh, I personally would like to listen to this class again during the week and uh, you know assimilate what you have said I have a question I'm sorry go ahead so yeah it was a lot of material and you were talking about um, how somebody comes to the anartanavritti stage and then they become aware of the you know their shortcomings and how they're uh and then so but they're preaching and then they have this conflict that they're thinking you know they can't really uh reveal their real you know uh, inner heart because um, you know, it'll destroy their image. That's right. Yeah, everybody's yeah. got a fake. Yeah, yeah. So this is a big problem. This is a big problem. And and uh, I think Gary Goberdon has mentioned that that's kind of a mood that's you know um, been created in the institution that you you know they don't you you're not allowed to reveal your heart. You, meaning you have to just kind of like have the stiff upper lip and just, um, uh, you know, you just go on without expressing to anybody your problem. 
and then uh, then there's it, it, it really it compounds with some people then they lose their inability to introspect which is critical for advancing in this line so this is a serious matter you brought up yeah one thing that really unbelievably helps is to have somebody one person that you can confide in they you know that's going not going to tell anybody else going to completely uh uh, keep it confidential, and that it's not going to judge you. Just be willing to listen and hear you out. That you can reveal it to. Otherwise, you keep it. We keep it within ourselves, and it'll just destroy us, mm-hmm. or it'll make it. We can't advance. Correct. As far as um, uh, re- repetition, yeah, uh, that was uh, another point. Is that. Uh, uh, we we have our samskaras and they come from uh, emotions. The problem is is that in material life we have bad samskaras, you know, sinful desires that we have samskaras from previous lifetimes and in this lifetime we keep repeating the same thing again and again. That's what's so dangerous about sinful desires it creates other sinful desires. But spiritual desires uh, that's what we need is these emotional um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, experiences that we remember that uh, help us uh, that really make a deep impression that's what will help us uh, to make spiritual advancement but the problem is we don't always have those kind of emotions or those kind of things that really deeply affect us in emotional service so if we repeat that's the other thing if we repeat uh, the devotional activities that will take the place of not being able to have an emotional response because eventually by repeating it over and over and over again it'll make an impression on us just as much as emotions will make an impression on us repeating things will make an impression on us so if we hear again and again we practice devotional service again and again then that'll make a lasting impression anyway that was one point I wanted to make Hi, hi Krishna Earlier in the class, you were mentioning about um, when people come to the temple and they run into negative negativity or pajapa towards other devotees. And I was just remembering that because my brother sent me to the temple, when I heard those things, I had him to go to. I, I was very disturbed about what they told me, and I didn't really feel like going back. But my brother told me, sister, avoid those people and go to the temple. He was my older brother, so I listened to him. And it saved me. So I was later, when, I'm, when I was sharing Krishna consciousness with people, I was very careful. Even if somebody I, was, I thought really offensive or I didn't like, I would only speak nicely about everyone to the new person. And it was like a couple of years before they could see what was really going on. Because there's politics everywhere, in every place of work, in every school, in every religion. There's more in the material world, so there's going to be politics. But when you're talking about a child and how they need to be cared for, I tried so much to shelter them from all the negativity. So I just kind of put on a front, and it's not that it was fake, it was that I wanted them to become really attached, and then they would do something like they chanted more around, it was a big celebration, like we should have a kirtan party, we should have a chorus. And I think it's like, that reminds me of just having children also, whenever they make a little bit of advancement, so much encouragement to give them, and then they want to make more advancement. Anyway, 
It was a lovely class. I'm really glad I got to listen. Thank you. There's uh, one devotee. Um, he came to Krishna consciousness uh, through his father. His father uh, had a great influence on him. His, his mother was uh, a non-devotee, but his father was a devotee. Fallen devotee had problems in Krishna consciousness, but eventually he came back to Krishna consciousness, and then he told his son. He preached to his son. His son joined the temple. Um, the problem was is the father was not... Uh, still not very advanced, and he was extremely critical and blasphemous of others. Uh, so he spread that poison to his son, and because the son, being you know, of course, uh, he was indebted to his father for being a Krishna conscious, and he believed everything he said. So he got the same mentality, very very offensive. And then wh what happened is that even new people that, you know, that had good qualities, really advancing nicely in Krishna consciousness, when they made friends with him, he dragged them down. And now they're on the same level as him. So this kind of thing has, is very, very polluting. Um, it, it has to be uh, rooted out in ourselves and to be able to protect uh, people when they first uh, start out their devotional life that they're not exposed to it as much as possible because it has very detrimental effects. I remember being heartbroken seeing it happen in the temple community where I joined it and what I adopted, the, the thinking that I that helped me was that everybody has a choice. Like I would try to be really close to people and sit with them and speak nicely about everyone there and ask them how they're doing. And sometimes, even in that way, doing all that, they would go towards that negativity. They, like, they, kinda, they chose it. And maybe they were, well, I don't understand why karma or choice, but I just rested in the fact that everyone has a choice. And we're offering something so beautiful, and if we do our very best to give them so much positivity and, and love, and they still choose to associate in that negativity without even questioning, hey, I heard this, what do you think about that? And I just had to let go because it's ultimately their choice. It's like we had a choice to choose the material world versus the spiritual world. Anyway. Okay, very good. All right. So one thing that uh, crossed my mind, I was thinking a lot of it, you covered so many things um, that it's... Um, you know, like each, each, you said so many things and different ones may have um, spoke at this particular time uh, strongly to, to different ones of us because there's so many things. But one thing, one thing that sort of jumped at me is when you were talking about a lack of compassion and you feel that you just don't have real compassion. And, um, and I, I've many times said that probably my favorite service is, is speaking to new people. I, I just really uh, love it. And so I was thinking about compassion. Why, why is that? Is, do I feel compassion? And I think what you said was very true, and I think it, it's there in my heart. It's, it probably isn't so much the compassion, maybe a little bit, but definitely not uh, like... Uh, an Uttama Adhikari or somebody who has really, really deep realizations. But I think the, the, the two things that 
have motivated me in, in speaking to new people is number one, I feel a debt because I remember one devotee in particular, I probably mentioned his name many times, Aviram, when I became, uh, actually just started coming to the Sunday feast. And, uh, and I met devotees, like you said, that were negative about ISKCON, and it was just all kind of confusing to, confusing to me. Uh, but, but somehow, I, you know, Krishna in my heart had me still continue to come to the Sunday program and, and associate. And then I met this one devotee, Avi Ram, who really took me under his, under his wing and uh, protected me. And I could see he's so wise. He just really protected me from, from others and showed me real... Uh, I could tell he really cared. And he, it, would, it would answer all of my questions. And he's the one who eventually convinced me to, to move into the temple and then as a new devotee, he was always watching out for me and answering my questions. And he clearly was my was was my shiksha guru, uh, one of my Vartmer Padarsha gurus. Felt very indebted. So that's one thing that that motivates me in speaking to new people. So I just feel like I know what it's like to be a new person, and, and I was so appreciative that someone seemed to really care uh, and. I just that, that that really motivates me. I know how important that was to me. It, it made all the difference in the world, and I'm sure we've all experienced that. We've all found one or two people that that, that probably did really care about us. That was very instrumental. So that is one, and the other is I I really want to advance in spiritual life. And in the Gita, Krishna says that there's there's no one more dear than one who's preaching. So to preach to new people is, to me, it's like better than, certain, than worshiping the deity, you know, twirling some incense. At least for me, I'm sure for the Pajaris that really do it with their heart, that's really, you know, they're make, there's a lot more devotion for them. But uh, at least in my particular case, uh, I always remember that, that Krishna's saying there's no one more dear than one who's preaching, and uh, there's no greater way to serve Krishna, we've many times heard the example of a very, you know, a very wealthy person. What can you do to please them? You know, nothing really. They've, they've got. What can you give them? They've got everything. But you know, you give their 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 dog a little biscuit or to say something nice to their child. They're very really. Then you can really touch their heart. So they're the two things that motivate me, and, and I definitely relate to what you say. I don't to to really have compassion. That's a very, very advanced level. I'm, I'm not on that level. But anyway, there are the two things that have, have always motivated me in, in speaking to, to new people, really try to take them aside and let them feel that, that somebody cares. Well, I totally agree with you. It's our duty to preach, certainly, and especially if you have an ability. I know that you are just amazing with people. You're a real people person, and uh, people, people are automatically um, uh, attracted to you. You, um, so, and Prabhupada himself, Shil probably saw his own example. He would uh, push devotees uh, to preach. You know, sometimes instead of him giving the lecture, he would just turn around and tell so and so, you know, you give the lecture. So it's again that analogy about uh, when the child he may just be first learning the language. So for most of us, even if we weren't brand new to Krishna consciousness. 
you know, the the uh, the parents or the guru, the guide wants uh, them to start talking like that, and then at least for I only speak it for myself, for uh, somebody that's uh, at least hopefully on the Narjanavritti stage, uh, in order to be introspective, when we uh, express the philosophy then that helps our own conviction, if nothing else. So, sure, sure. I'm just being honest. I say that I, I can't really say I have compassion for others. i got my own problems. But uh, uh, it certainly helps me to reach uh, others. No, I, I agree with you. I think we've all experienced that, that when we start, whether we're given a, a Bhagavatam class or whether we're, we're you know, not, not one of the Bhagavatam reciters, you know, formally giving classes, but, but all of us, when we're speaking to new people, just teaching basic philosophy, and, and, and as very young devotees, we probably remember when we were starting to speak to someone, how it really deepens our realization. That's really true what you're saying. That we really, it, 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 it sometimes we're, we're speaking, we think, wow, how, where did that come from? You know, how did that, how did I, you know, it's coming from Krishna, you know, Krishna empowering and speaking through us, and, and, giving us the intelligence to answer a question that ordinarily we might not have been able to answer or, or present it in such a way we've never presented it before or heard it in a certain way before, but it just, it just, comes, just comes through us. And if we can have humility and recognize that that isn't coming from my own brain, it's coming from, from, from Krishna, coming from Guru, coming from the Parampara, it's a wonderful feeling. And it definitely, I agree with you, it definitely deepens our realizations when we speak. Okay. Can I add something really quick? Oh, sure, please. This, I really, really like the class. Thank you. Um, I kind of just want to stand up for a little bit. I mean, I think that everybody has the capacity for com- compassion at some level, at least. I mean, we may not be able to be like Srila Prabhupada or something, where we can just give up our whole life and our whole agenda for the benefit of other people like we can still be you know stuck in our own life and stuck in our own problems and care about how other people are doing i mean we we even have compassion for animals that's why we care that they're being slaughtered and we don't participate in that so i think everybody even children we, we teach them very young you know how to care about their impact on their environment and the beings around them teach very basic things like you know treat people the way you want to be treated okay okay can i clarify i'm glad you brought that up i i didn't say it right what i meant is that if we don't have compassion we're not even a human being yes that's natural you know if we don't like to see other people suffer what i mean is uh for high-grade devotees, their compassion is to see if people don't have Krishna consciousness. That, as far as I can understand, that you don't attain until you get to the initial stage. When you really start to feel what they feel, they want to give other people Krishna consciousness. Uh, so it, I think in lower stages that uh, it's more of... Uh, a, a human compassion. You don't want to see other people suffer, but when you get to the higher stages, then it's you want to, you don't want to see them suffer not having Krishna consciousness. 
I don't know. Okay. That's well, nice. Thank you for clarifying that. Well, I don't know why. Don't know um, but don't you see how you are giving us Krishna consciousness every day? You're facilitating all of our Krishna consciousness. We're coming here every day to this well. I have my selfish motives. Because <laughs> I tell you, without you guys, I would be floundering. It's not that I'm also compassionate. I want you all to be Krishna conscious. It's more like, God, I need some association. I'm just well, gonna... we all do, and we appreciate it. So, anyways, I, I think that you do have some compassion in there. That's all. And thanks for the nice class. Okay, all right. So, look, next week, what I will do is um, I, uh, I'll re- like condense into just a couple of sound bites about what we covered so far, just to bring us up to where we are right now. And then we'll definitely conclude, and I'll leave plenty of time to, uh, to have Q&A, and also I'll go slower. I like to go slow because I can't think fast, but I just want to... Uh, it takes me a, a lot to get out what I'm trying to say. So, anyway, I'll see what I can do next week. Thank you very much. Okay, all glorious. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Thank you, Krishna. Everyone okay. comment. I love you. I'm Okay, how are you, Krishna? Yeah.